The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with a returning guest uh, who's uh, an artist uh, and a labor organizer, a union activist, and a librarian and archivist extraordinaire. Uh, welcome, Lincoln Cushing. Yeah. It's Hi. a pleasure to be back. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, you are the compiler of this, uh, the author of, uh, co-author of this new uh, book, on labor, American labor posters, um, and uh, agitate, the subtitle is Agitate, Educate, Organize. Yeah, uh, it's actually the title is Agitate, Educate, Organize American Labor Posters. Oh, I see. I'm reading it from the cover, and <laughs> yeah. I'm reading from left to right. So I, yeah. <laughs> that's, I wonder how catalogers, uh, they, yeah, I guess they look at the title page. So, I guess. Yeah, 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 that's, that's clear there. Uh, and it's from Cornell, right? Uh, Cornell yeah, University Cornell Press. University Press. And uh, why did you go, first of all, why did you go with Cornell this time? Whereas I think some of your earlier books on Cuban posters and um, Chinese revolutionary posters um, were with another press. Yeah, they were with Chronicle Books, which is a commercial publisher. And they were great, but they, they declined on this one because they just didn't think it would appeal to their demographics. And um, the nice thing about Cornell is it's the premier school of industrial and labor relations in the United States. And so they were natural to consider for this. And, and in fact, they, they responded pretty quickly, even though this is not a typical book for them to do. They've really not done any big full-color books like this. But, but they responded quickly, and they were great to work with. It must be a very expensive book to print with all these color of uh, it is, and and we didn't send it off to Hong Kong. This was done at a uh, a union shop in North America. So, part of the process was just like doing a documentary film. We had to raise money to subsidize the production because we didn't want an expensive coffee table book. I didn't want a sixty dollar book that nobody could afford. Oh yeah, yeah. So we raised eighteen thousand dollars to subsidize the cost of the production. Oh my gosh! Wow. That's a lot of money. Well, it was, you know, it was, I, I was sort of scared about that, but it turned out partly because the California Labor Federation endorsed the project, and they sent a letter out about it, and unions all over the state kicked in money. So that raised $8,000, and then two foundations each kicked in 5000 So that, that oh, made the, the subsidy. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, how did you – I know you have a huge – you probably have a really great collection yourself. Uh, and you're also an artist, and some of, I guess your posters are in here, right? Yeah, yeah some, you, some of mine are in yeah. there, too, which was a little funny, but yeah. But, but the big trick was going around to archives all over the country. And so when I was a librarian at UC Berkeley at the uh, Institute of Industrial Relations, I had, I had gotten a grant from, because there is some grant money available to UC librarians for research and scholarship, not much, I might add, but it was, but it was something. It was a Lauk, it, Lauk it allowed me, yeah, this was a Lauk grant. Yeah. And so that allowed me to do some initial research and some travel to various archives. And I, I identified which repositories had some material that was worth following up on. So, oh, wow. And you so took you the see, photos yeah. there, right? You took photos of the, of the posters there. Yeah, and so, so that was the first round of at least identifying what was there. Oh, and identifying then this, once, yeah. once, once Cornell said yes to the project, 
my co-author and I made a series of trips to each of these places, and I took my, my high-end camera, and I took pictures on site of the posters that they had, and then sort of as part of the exchange, I gave them high-resolution files of their own posters. Oh, wow. Um, That's so it was sort of this nice exchange with these various archives. But it really, you know, one of the heroes in this book are all the, the libraries and archives and special collections that held you know, these pockets of material that, that were really essential to the creation of this book. Yeah, and otherwise people wouldn't even know it was there, right? I mean, <laughs> Right. I mean, it's partly because... You know, labor is a relatively marginalized subject area, but also posters are a relatively sub, you know, marginalized genre. And so even in a collection that's got a strong labor presence, the posters rarely get much attention just because they're, they're a real pain to process. You know, and catalogers tend to not do a very good job with them, and it's just, they're hard to do. I, I'm glad so they, you did. They, yeah. yeah, one of the posters I noticed was uh, one of the uh, folks who had... Uh, striking at uh in florida over taco bell and right. uh, the uh they were actually on the show uh uh-huh. when they started the the organizing students yeah that's uh, a very important campaign yeah. and, and so yeah i mean a lot of what this book is about is is organizing old and new and it's not it's not just unions. people need to realize that this book isn't just about unions it's about workers in general sort of trying to stick up for themselves and sometimes unions are part of that and sometimes they're not but it covers a really broad swath yeah and it could be uh you know affiliated people or it could be non-affiliated uh workers right you could have right absolutely yeah i mean there's a lot of people that and a lot of this is just about the dignity of workers and um you know sticking up for what you know what is a worker and what's what's a you know how do we treat them in our society, and what are examples of ways that they've gotten more respect and more, more pay and more dignity? Did you use uh, any uh, bumper stickers? No, not really. Again, you know, part of the, the trick on a book like this is how do you sort of define the scope to make it manageable. Yeah. And you know, there's even just the category of, of prints where you, you, know, you have a fine art print that someone may make that's about a labor subject, but if the purpose of that print was not to be publicly posted, we didn't include it, you know, with, with very rare exceptions. The idea is these are all works that were designed to be made, you know, freely available to the public, and that's a specific category of material. Although I remember... So it didn't include T-shirts, no bumper oh, stickers, yeah. no tattoos, even though there's some great labor tattoos out there. Um, there's a lot of labor graphics <laughs> yeah. that weren't included in this. Yeah, that's too bad because uh, I remember... Um a bumper sticker that said uh, "Labor gave us the gave you the forty-hour uh, forty-hour 40 week." Right. In fact, one of the main groups that that produced that is is the Minneapolis-based organization Northland Poster Collective. And oh yeah. Sadly, they just they just had to close their doors this summer. They, after many years of operation, they just couldn't survive as a business, and so they've had to close up. But they made a lot of those materials, including posters, but also bumper stickers and T-shirts. And, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, oh, it's right. hard to make a living doing this. What happened to the archive of the collection? A lot of their material is down at the Center for the Study of Political Graphics in Los Angeles. Yeah. I, I'm on the board of that, and they're a really, really good organization. Um, so they are... They just came out with... Yeah, they just huh? came out with a, a, a calendar. Uh, I was surprised to see it at yeah. Barnes & Noble. Or, or yeah, no, one really, of the mainstream uh, com, uh, stores, 
Yeah, yeah no, they, they're, they're really a good organization, and they, they partner with other groups, and they also do a lot of exhibits and traveling shows, and they, they actually did a labor show themselves a couple of years ago. So um, they're really a very important repository, and especially when you get a thing like Northland Poster going under, their material needs to be somewhere. And so right now the Center for the Study of Political Graphics is one of the main sort of repositories for this sort of material. You mentioned T-shirts, and uh, that uh, group that was protesting um, uh, Taco Bell made mm-hmm. a T-shirt with the same graphic that you have in your book. Uh, yeah. Made a T-shirt, and they gave me a copy. Um, gave me a T-shirt after they were on my show, on this show, and uh, I put it in an exhibit on immigration in Orange County uh, uh-huh. last year. This past year, uh, there was an exhibit in the library. So that was, well, yeah, clearly, I mean, yeah. that's one of the areas of overlap. Is it was very interesting as we were putting this book together to see what the subject areas were. And you know, we didn't go into this with a preconceived idea of what the chapters were going to be. We did the original research first, and then we literally made copies of all the posters and then just spread them out on the floor. Hmm. And we sort of wallowed through this sea of images to see what things revealed themselves as being the naturally occurring sort of taxonomy of this collection. And one of the things is clearly sort of the impact of of immigration and sort of who's, who's, you know, where are the workers coming from and so forth and and sort of globalization of work as well. So that's that's one of the themes in the book that really becomes evident is is that. That that, uh, diversity over time. Yeah. Yeah. It it didn't start off like that, right? I mean, some of the early unions were very... uh, protective of their own members and oh absolutely i mean the union label itself was basically saying you know buy from white workers and you know the the male and pale aspect of the (laughs) union movement um really you know was was evident at the beginning but at the same time we start showing how that changed and you know the the you know industrial workers of the world are one of the first labor groups that really fought against that and you can see it in their posters and they they challenge racism in a way that was very important to do in in the teens so you start to see breaks in that and then currently you see a labor movement that is much more you know color sensitive than it ever was before and so there are some examples of progress and that's been wonderful to see and to document also the progress over um I guess you call it patriotism in the book, uh, nationalism. There was a lot of right. that, and uh, there was a lot of that initially in waving the flag kind of stuff. Yeah. So again, you know, patriotism, and we start to see, you know, sort of how that's changed over time. And again, it's you know, it's a, it's changing terrain. Sometimes it goes back and forth. I mean, I remember right after September 11th, I happened to be documenting union labor sites, and a lot of the labor sites were very jingoistic and very America first. Um, so that, that comes and goes, but again, you start to see labor being much more open and understanding to a, to a more sophisticated political view than, it, than I think it's ever been before. How so many, that's, that's been yeah. great. How many images, uh, how many posters uh, do you have in the book? The book has over 250, um, and we... we um, I mean, but, you know, the, the archive that I'm working from, the digital database, I've got over 900. Wow. And so it's, you know, we had, to sele- we had to make selections, and we wanted things that were either 
artistically important or historically significant or, or both, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of material that either came later than we had the deadline for the book or whatever. There's a lot more material than, than is in the book, but the book really, we tried to show sort of the best examples of what this material was. Which were the biggest, uh, the bigger archives that you um, went to visit? Well, um, some of the, the really big ones were the, the, the Walter Ruther Archive, which is at Wayne State in Detroit. Um, the Center for the Study of Political Graphics had a lot. Um, the, this, there's an archive that I'm actually working on right now, which is at my house. It was a <laughs> privately assembled archive, which was built by a veteran of the free speech movement, Michael Rossman. And his collection had a large, important labor collection. One of the large collections that we visited but wasn't included in the book for various reasons was the Tamilman at NYU. Right. They've got a very large labor collection as well. For sure. How, could, well, how come you couldn't include that? Well, that's a complicated story. Partly it was that all of these mostly were based on our going to shoot them, and it turned out that there was a miscommunication about our being able to come and shoot these at the Tamilman because... They already had a digital database, but when we got there, their database was temporarily unavailable because they had partnered with a vendor that had done this as an experimental project and had pulled the plug on the project. So all of a sudden, their entire online database of their poster collection wasn't accessible. So they had to scramble to put it up themselves. So it's sort of a, a lesson in the uh, weaknesses of, of partnering in some of these projects and making sure that when, when a library and archive put something together, that, that there's a long-term plan as to what's going to happen, even if, they, even if their vendor decides to, to bail on the project. Yeah, and the right to keep the, keep the, keep the content, I guess. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the Tamilman did, in fact, own their own images, but they didn't have, have this material mounted on their own website. Right. And so there was a gap in the availability of that material, but they, they have a very significant collection as well. So we mentioned them, we just didn't include their work. You also went to the Labadee collection. Did you find some posters yeah, there? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They were, they, were the, they were sort of the first on our cross-country trip, and they were, it was wonderful dealing with them. And yeah. you know, I've known the director, Julie Harada, for years, and you know, their collection is, is very important. And you know, it's broadly sort of American radicalism, but labor clearly is part of that. So, you know, we really tried to be representative of these various archives. And in, and in the book, I list sort of how to contact them. And, and we encourage further research on this. You know, this was sort of, you know, a, a library version of open source. We want people to jump on this and to do further research. There's plenty of room to work here. We're not at all proprietary about it. You have some uh, anti-labor posters up, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, not, not all labor posters are pro-union. And, in fact, even within the labor movement, there's a lot of controversy as to what are the right ways to go. And so there's some posters about, you know, what's, what's called the, you know, the union democracy movement of how do you make unions more accountable to the membership. And so there are various efforts of challenging that, but then there's also posters totally from the outside of the labor movement saying labor unions are bad, and so we wanted to include some examples of those as well, because those are also posters about labor. They're just against unions, but we felt that they were important to include because that shows that there's a real breadth to what this material includes. You, you have posters dating back to the 18th century. 
Yeah, absolutely. One, there's yeah, one or two there's some wonderful material yeah. from the you know eighteen eight you know nineties. It's just you know the labor movement's been around for a long time, and people you know need to know that there's this long history, and including you know graphics and posters. But um, you know, unfortunately, very little of this has been been documented. And you know, I mean, it sort of amazes me that this book is the first book on this on this in this country. Um, you know, other countries take the labor movement in our country more seriously. Germany, France, England, um, they're very interested in the U.S. labor movement much more than, than our own country is. I know in Amsterdam there's the Institute of Social History. Right. Yeah, and I actually went in the back once. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, in Amsterdam for a conference, and I uh, took a trolley, over a tram over there, and mm-hmm. um, they let me into the back room, and there was incredible... I mean, acres and acres, it seems, <laughs> just rooms right. and rooms of, of, of uh, shelving for posters. Ultimately, you know, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, in this country, there would be something like that, something that really is a national repository about movement and political history and labor history, but that really just doesn't exist in this country. It's really a sad testament to how much of an uphill battle sort of all oppositional culture has. But, know, post, just but how about poster really art? Yeah, but how about, you know, your books seem to, are they selling well uh, in terms of the they, other they ones? They do seem to sell well. Yeah. I mean, the Cuban, the Cuban poster book is in, is in multiple editions. Hmm. The Chinese poster book does well. I think that this book is going to do very well. But I also think that this book is going to do just as well outside the United States as it does in the United States. For sure. But, but a book like this, for example, just on Friday, I was interviewed by a fellow who was talking to me about this from a design point of view. That designers are very interested in something like this because it's not your traditional sort of design book, but it's also a very strong work. Yeah. But I'm really, I'm really hoping that a book like this will be picked up by various communities, not just the labor community. I think that anybody who teaches American history could say, "Wow, sure. here's a great way of looking at American history," or if you're looking at design. It's sort of a different way of looking at what design is and, and how design can be used for, for specifically, you know, constructive purposes as opposed to just selling, you know, bleach and, and um, perfume. <laughs> you know, it's, this is something where this is using one's skills for, for sort of making it a better world. And so I think that designers really resonate with that concept. Yeah, if you go to one of uh, to the stores, most of the design books seem to be about marketing or about advertising. Well, and that's and the fact is, in this country, that's sort of what drives the economy. You know, we um, we live under capitalism, and that's really where the business is. And if you wanted to make a living as a designer, it's it's a lot easier to do that if you go into product design than if you go into doing political poster books. I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, I always found that. Poster, uh, political poster books seem to go out of prints fast. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's because the print run is smaller. I'm not sure. Uh, well, it's also, hard part to of find. it, I think, yeah. is, I mean, it really, you know, a lot of the poster books are done by commercial publishers, and I think that you know, they approach it in a different way. I mean, even the books that I've done through Chronicle Books, you know, I've been very careful to make sure that these are affordable books. I don't want an expensive coffee table book. Right. I want something that a high school teacher could assign for his or her class because you know a $25 book, a $30 book is, is reasonable, especially given 
you know, full color, lots of illustrations. But you know, that I think is one of the reasons why a book like like any of these has a little bit more longevity. Is that it, it does it, it's affordable, and also because these are really oriented towards a a community that um, so they're they're looking for material that they can use for teaching. I mean, I'm always I'm very often doing presentations about this stuff to various groups, and they love it because it's a history, it's a slice of their own visual history that they really haven't been exposed to. You know, so the, these aren't just yeah. these yeah you know, these aren't just books about oh isn't this stuff interesting? I'm going to a lot more depth about why it's interesting and how it's not just ancient history. It's something that you can use in your daily life now. If you're if you're interested in doing a web graphic about immigration or about something like that, here's some materials you can draw upon to inform your work. I mean, there uh, can people actually just copy it, or they can't, right? I mean, in terms of the way intellectual property uh, laws are constructed well, it's, here. Well, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I, I encourage people to, I mean, for example, I'm a real proponent of, of fair use. Now, a lot of people are either unaware or unfamiliar with what fair use is, but it's a provision within the U.S. copyright law that under certain circumstances allows one to reproduce material without getting copyright permission. And I think the fair use is a really, really important tool for people that are doing education. It's, it doesn't support people that want to go off and make a T-shirt and sell it, but it does support somebody who says, look, I'm just trying to do a PowerPoint presentation for my classroom. Can I use this? Right. And I say, yes. Yeah. And the, it's really, people need to understand yeah. that on the one hand, you want to be respectful of artists and their work. But on the other hand, there are ways to use this in a way that does, that does both. And there's a whole movement called Copy Left, yeah, yeah. which is saying, you know, there's the work, we want to put it out there, we want people to use it, and as long as you give credit, and as long as you don't do it in a commercially exploitative way, we encourage its use. Yeah, that's great, yeah. I know there's this lawsuit by the AP photographer over the, you know, the collage, or the, the guy that did the... The Shepherd Fairy piece, yeah. yeah. In fact, I've sort of been in the middle of that. Oh. Um, the artwork and it's, on you know, Obama's because, uh, well, picture, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, it, and it gets into this, it's, it's a very tricky subject where, you know, where does the image come from? How did someone use it? What's considered transformative, which is one of the key elements in copyright is, you know, there's some areas where, for example, parody, if you do a parody of something, that's generally protected. And so say you take Mickey Mouse and you're doing, something that's an obvious parody of Mickey Mouse in a, in a, in a work, that is protected uh, under U.S. copyright law. So there are some loopholes. But at the same time, people need to realize that copyright in general is moving in the wrong direction. It's moving in the direction of longer and longer control by corporate owners that don't necessarily benefit the individual artists, but that make places like Sony and... Disney, you know, they can control images forever and can keep making a pile of money on this stuff, which in my mind really undermines sort of the intent, the, the, the best intentions of what copyright should be about. Like Michael so this Jackson, is a very, yeah. This is a very contested terrain. Like Michael Jackson is uh, making more money dead than alive. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just incredible. And you realize that, you know, copyright is something where it's, you know, it's, you know if I were a young law student, I would jump right into copyright law because it's, there's a lot going on right now, and 
there are ways in which defending it you know, for, for the people is really, there's a real need for people to do that. And it affects libraries. Libraries are often cautious about posting materials online because they're worried about being sued. Okay, so yeah, yeah. defending libraries' right to make material public is, is part of all of this. How does, uh, how does this Google Books project affect your book, then? You think uh, it will eventually get scanned, I suppose. Yeah, and in fact, some of my earlier books are already available. You, you, go, you can do, you know, they're available on Google search. And, and I actually think, I mean, it's very it's complicated. I think that in some ways it does draw people back to books. When people do a Google search, people who may not use libraries that much, who may just sort of rely entirely on the Internet, yeah. and then they find, you know, a, a selected reference, you know, and, you know, two pages from one of my books, they may go, huh. That looks like a good book, and they may go check it out, or they may go buy it. So yeah. I think that that there's a potentially beneficial relationship here, where where the digitization of, of books and posting of them may blow back into more purchases and library use of those same books. It's just like the whole issue of digitizing posters, when. You know, when a poster, if you've got a poster collection, say you've got 500 posters sitting in your special collection, but they're not digitized, people will really not know that they're there. They just don't. You can look at a catalog record, and it can describe a poster, but it, you may not know really what it's about. But if you put a little thumbnail image in your digital record, and people go, oh, yeah, I want to see that, the digitization draws interest in the actual object itself, and it draws interest in the repository that, that houses it. So I think that there's a positive feedback loop that can happen when more of this material is made available online. Definitely. Uh, we're talking uh, on subversity here with Dan Sang, um, with Lincoln Cushing, uh, artist, uh, librarian, archivist, and uh, activist, um, on his new book, uh, Agitate, Educate, Organize, American Labor Posters from Cornell University Press. Um, do you believe that labor posters are mainly... Uh, done to educate, agitate, and um, organize. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was funny. It was, it was one of the reasons that I mentioned how I've been happy working with Cornell is that they're the ones that came up with this suggested title, which I thought was great. It was a much more radical title than our original working title, which was Artworks. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, it, they, they quickly bonded with the concept of this, and the fact is that when you're dealing with labor, you're dealing with a very politicized subject in this country. Um, and we spoke earlier about how most countries take labor much more seriously. I mean, in our country, you know, labor part labor membership has been dropping like a stone, and most people, you know, don't find unions to be what they don't think to be relevant to their lives. But in fact, just like you know, the United States is coasting on the, the infrastructure that was built during the Federal Arts Project and the workers, you know, the, the WPA projects of the 30s, you know, roads, highways, tunnels, you know, post offices that were built with public money back in the day. We're also coasting on the benefits of organized labor in a way that people don't even realize. So it's really a very politicized subject, and the posters, even some posters that seem relatively benign, but when you realize you know, they're talking about the rights of workers to be protected from being hurt on the job, well, that's, that's a political subject. And so 
all of these are quite political, even if they weren't necessarily intended to be. What are, what are some of the themes? That, uh, we touched on some of them, but can you maybe we can go into more detail about the particular themes that you uh, highlighted in the book. Yeah, and like I said, it was really it was interesting because when I went into this, both Tim and I, and we were both familiar with the labor movement. We'd been active as organizers and so forth, but that we sort of thought we knew what labor posters were about, and in fact, certain themes that you don't think about really revealed themselves to us. So, for example, we have a chapter on, call, we call it Democracy, Voting, and Patriotism, and the role of labor in getting people to vote, not just about labor issues or even about labor candidates, but about voting in general, sort of voting is always seen as sort of one of the cornerstones of what the labor movement's about. So it's ultimately, it's potentially a very democratic component to our country, but yet it really rarely gets credit for that. Um, we've got a subject on war, peace, and internationalism, because, again, you start to realize that labor at various times has been, you know, certainly most people are aware of labor's support for you know, World War II and sort of the war effort, and everybody sort of jumped in and worked together. But in fact, there were large numbers of strikes during World War II, and in a lot of ways, management was using special wartime contracts as a way to sort of take advantage of labor. So there was a lot of labor strife during World War II, even though the workers and the bosses were both very patriotic. There was a subcurrent of tension around, well, we may be patriotic, but we also need to stick up for our rights as workers as well. So, and then, of course, during the Vietnam War, labor, organized labor, big organized labor, was very much supportive of the war. But the rank and file became very anti-war, so there was a lot of tension between the top and the bottom of the, or of the labor movement about how to go. And finally, you know, organized labor at the grassroots broke ranks and said, we're opposed to the war. So there was a lot of tension and dynamic around that. And what, you know, what's considered patriotic? Is it patriotic to be opposed to the war or is it patriotic before the war? Mm -hmm. Well, we're seeing that now with the Iraq War and the yeah. Afghanistan War. And we've got a, quote, progressive president who's now deeply involved in a war that may or may not be in the best interests of our country. And so what's Labor's position on this? Yeah, so the, those are some of the subjects. Yeah, some of the subjects are some of the subjects are much more obvious. You know, strikes and boycotts. Yeah, you know that's labor. Right. You know, health and safety. Even though that's sort of a more obscure subject within labor, it's really an important one. And we have a lot of posters that people have never seen about how being able to come home at the end of the day with all your body parts is really. <laughs> A good reason for, for people sure. to want to join a union, and even things where it's not so obvious, like stress and using computers. You know, the whole when computers were introduced, that was really they were hard on a lot of the workers, and so it took workers pushing back to say, you know, I don't want cathode rays blasting in my eyes. I don't want bad keyboards. You know, sort of pushing back for what's a safe way to use a computer, which people think, wow, how can a computer hurt you? Well, computers were hurting people. And it took workers and unions fighting back to say, we need to make these new tools safer. On the war uh, issue, uh, the Vietnam War, I remember, the, I, I noticed on your posters, you included some uh, support groups that, uh, you know, some rallies and, you know, posters about labor, getting labor involved. But also uh, then in the other one uh, on uh, farm workers, I saw mm -hmm. you had uh, 
posters from uh, Allen, you know, uh, featuring Allen Ginsberg and um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, supporting right. farm workers. Uh, so farm worker posters were a big part of y- your book. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things that, that you see in this is sort of you look at who who are the players, who are the people who are making these posters, and in fact, not that many of these were actually made by unions. Um, many of them were made by workers within unions. Many of them were made by artists who wanted to support unions. There's a lot of posters that were made by groups that there's a whole there's a whole range of organizations out there that that are you know, that I, I call labor support groups that are either involved in legal support, medical support, um, you know, political support with legislation. But there's a, there's a whole pile of groups in this country that work with labor and with unions that support the, the labor movement. And they also produce a lot of posters. So there's like the Coalition of Labor Union Women. You know, they produce posters. There's, you know, occupational safety and health groups. So, and then with the farm workers, for example, I mean, half the posters that were done about the farm workers were not done by the farm workers union. They were done by all these various groups doing benefits and support for the farm workers. And so the farm workers were really, really good about integrating this community support in, in what they were doing. And so you, that's part of why you see a tremendous proliferation and artistic range of the posters about the farm workers. But they're not all done by the farm workers. And uh, you also uh, depict, the posters also depict music, actually, or songs, or lyrics yes. and songs. And you have yes. one uh, from the IWW, Songs of the IWW, in concert with Utah Phillips, etc., yeah. in Chicago, I guess, North yes. Lincoln Avenue. Yeah. Now, some of the, I mean, labor, you know, labor at the very top has usually not been very um, clever about integrating culture into its work, and that's sort of been an ongoing battle. But at the grassroots, you know, organizing efforts are very smart about using, you know, whenever you've got a picket line, a very successful picket line has oh. a lot of culture involved. You have chants. people out there with yeah. the guitar singing. Yeah. You've got songs. You've got chants. Yeah. You've got good picket signs. You've got good T-shirts. Or you've got good slogans. The labor culture is most evident and most dynamic at at the base, and that's where you see a tremendous amount of wonderful, wonderful work. And um, so, you know, that's been very interesting to see. How does this whole uh, advent of computerization and, you know, putting stuff on the web, do you think people are still going to do posters, or are they just going to put uh, things on online uh, without you know, creating uh, a print an- equivalent, I guess? The answer is both. I mean, I get, to, I get asked this question a lot because in some ways posters are sort of seen as an archaic art form. Mm. And in some ways that's sort of true. But on the other hand, there are a couple of things going on. One is there are computers have allowed a whole new method for disseminating poster images. And what you'll often find is as campaigns become much more national and global in scope, one way that people get the word out is they will create a poster image and they will post it online as a PDF or something, and then people anywhere else in the world can download that poster, print it out, either small or big, and then get that image out very quickly. So whereas, you know, 
15 years ago, the model would have been somebody you know, in San Francisco would have printed up you know, 1,500 posters and then have to mail out packets of 300 to cities all over the country. Now what they do is they post the image online. Instantly, people everywhere else can download that, get it printed up, and get it disseminated. It's just a lot more faster and efficient. So computers in some ways are creating new models for producing and disseminating posters than, than existed before. And the other is, of course, that you can have images. People can do better research about poster images. And so they can go, ooh, you know, I need something now about some particular strike that's going on in Pittsburgh. Well, they can find out more about that quickly and then do a poster for supporting it. So there's a lot of ways in which the new technology actually supports the, the creation of actual physical posters, and people are still making real posters. They're not just a historical artifact. In the 60s, I remember, or 70s, I remember silk screening. People, my friends were silk screening posters, but do people still do that? People still do that. I mean, there's, there's workshops. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm out here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there are people in San Francisco, there are people in Oakland, they're still making silkscreen posters because they're still a very efficient way to make sort of a large, relatively low-cost poster. I mean, you can make a big digital print, um, and, you know, those are getting cheaper, but they're still not totally cheap. And so, and also, you know, there's something about a handmade object that, you know, just like people in music appreciate vinyl, you know, people in, you know, the, you know, people in the world notice something when it's actually handmade. There's something about it that resonates in a different way than sort of some slick mass-produced object. And so there's an element to a hand-produced poster that is for a local community that people will somehow find more powerful sometimes. And so there's an element of that as well. You mentioned the community. I mean, do you have any idea how many... Uh, posters of each, how many, uh, what's the print run of each poster, or did you get any idea of any of these? I know that for some of these. Um, most of these were not done in huge editions, and that's one reason why it's sort of harder to find these, and one reason why we're relying upon sort of, you know, national um, repositories, because a lot of these are very local. You know, there's a particular strike, well, it's unlikely that you know, a strike for you know, one particular warehouse is going to be you know, in, in San Francisco. It's going to be in an archive in New York. Right. So there's a lot of very regional material, um, and that's one of the reasons why we really I – mean, one reason to get the book out is to tell people you may have a poster sitting in your basement that may be the only poster about that subject. It should, it should join with the rest of these. Um, but – you know, there's, there's, there are a lot of posters made, but a lot of these were done in relatively short runs. They didn't do gazillions of these. These weren't, you know, I mean, some posters, you know, some anti-war posters were done in much larger editions. A lot of these were relatively small runs. Yeah, and maybe you could compare also, you know, in your other, one of your other books, you did a book on cultural revolution posters. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some people call that propaganda posters. And would use propaganda art. Do you, how would you compare American labor art with uh, in, uh, propaganda art from, say, China? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm one of those people that 
that doesn't believe that the word propaganda is necessarily a bad thing. Right. I mean, it's, you know, for me, I mean, part of it's that, you know, I grew up in the 60s and I grew up around various political movements and the idea is that it's, it's legitimate to put out something that's trying to express a point of view and trying to convince people to behave differently. I mean, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in America, we call that advertising. Um, <laughs> here, you know, I, I, yeah, propaganda is just sort of the political version of that, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so I would consider almost all of these posters in this book to be propaganda. They're, they have a point of view, and they're trying to express that, and they're trying to convince people to come over to their side. Um, I think that it's part of this sort of wonderful culture war that we've got going on as to how do you convince people that they may not have the whole story and that there's other ways of looking at things. And so I think it's, I think it's all propaganda. Yeah, yeah, everything is, uh, takes a point of view. But I was trying to ask about, you know, the way they are created are different, right? In China, there were officially created uh, poster art, right? They, people were working to put these out by the millions, probably. And uh, uh, here, it's all, it seems more individualized, of course. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is, um, I mean, in China, the, the, the period I'm most familiar with is during the Cultural Revolution. And, um, and you're dealing with you know, a, a mass movement in a mass country where it's a giant country. And so the idea that you do something in very large editions makes a lot of sense. Here, for these particular subjects, I mean, there were some things that were done in large editions. Um, you know, there were some national campaigns. But, again, the, the nature of most of these campaigns were much more local. And in China, again, the posters that we don't see from the Cultural Revolution were the ones that were the locally produced posters. There were also posters done you know, just in a particular town. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. you know, there were, those are the ones that have been harder to document and to find. So even though we may not see them now, and even in my book, um, that doesn't mean that those posters don't exist. That just means that we haven't really captured that slice of that that output. Um, and in China, they did you know giant character wall posters. You know, that's right, yeah. They did posters where that's that was a very yeah. a very dynamic local medium where people would make a you know they hand make a poster, put it up on a wall, and there'd be all this you know in a public place, and there'd be a big dialogue about that. I mean, that was a very democratic medium. Those have not really been captured. So, again, posters, there's all sorts of posters, and there's posters that are produced in the, in the millions, and then there's producers produced in the hundreds, and they're all sort of a range. And so what I've captured you know, in this book are some of the posters that are mostly there at the lower end of that. Some of these posters were done in larger editions. But, um, you know, again, you know, the labor movement's never been a... a huge mass organization in this country, and they've not really relied on poster art. So, but again, like some of the World War II posters, those were done in large editions. Those were going all over the country and produced by the U.S. government. So those were, those were examples that were probably close, most closely mimicked, the ones we're talking about from the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, they were the, encouraging, encouraging production and support the war effort and, you know, all of that stuff. The iconic image of the woman with the raised fist. Right. I mean, that, you know, the, the poster that's often called Rosie the Riveter, but it's, but it's not. The Rosie the Riveter image is a different one, and we talk about that uh, in the book. Yeah. You know, it's really the We Can't Do It poster. And that poster 
in some ways is sort of the most iconic labor poster. And and the proof of that is how often it's been re-reproduced and reutilized by various groups. I mean, right. We've got some examples in the book of how that image has been picked up and used you know, a huge number of different ways. <laughs> you know, and it's a really strong image. Yeah, and so sure. it's it's sort of like this is the idea of you know, individual power and workers, and it's a great image. I wanted to ask you also about the, you mentioned the election theme, a uh, voting theme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, IWW is considered uh, a kind of anarchist union in a way. Uh, and did they support going to vote? Well, um, they, I'd say that the IWW has an anarchist component to it, but it's also, you know, it's, I mean, organizationally, it's 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 a it's a rare you know, labor movement in that they were very deliberately from the very beginning saying the idea of having organizing by specific you know occupation is nuts. It sets workers up against each other, and so I'd say a more accurate term for you know, if I had to pick one word to pick the IWW would be radical. You know, they were they were fundamentally a much more radical approach to what labor organizing is than almost anything else in this country. And so their posters cover a lot of ground, and there were circumstances where they did support the electoral process, um, the specific candidates, um, but in general, they focused more on broader revolutionary reforms than what many people would consider elections to be, which would be sort of liberal and and sort of small-step reforms. Um, whereas the groups, you know, but you see, you know, when you talk about voting and, and you, you have different levels of voting, I mean, one of the radical movements within the labor movement is making labor more democratically representative. Right. And In so some votes, unions yeah. like the, you know, the Teamsters Union, you know, is one of the unions that was considered to be very top-down, corrupt, and so the movement within the Teamsters... TDU, to make the yeah. much TDU, I mean, that was a really important thing. And so that, to me, and we have a TDU poster yeah, in there because yeah. we really want to show that the labor movement is not monolithic and there are struggles within labor. And sometimes there are, you know, there are, there are actions at a, you know, at a, in a particular place that the international doesn't support. And so there's a struggle between what's going on within the workers at one place and, the, and you know, their current union, and they, they get into conflict about what's the right thing to do. And that happens all the time. And so there's this dynamism about how do, you rep, how, how do unions really reflect the, the wishes of their members that often comes out in these posters. And so that's, that's a wonderful element of the labor movement is that it's, it is very democratic and it's very dynamic. I would think the, the bosses, I suppose, would... Uh put out posters to oppose union organizing and, uh, you know, like to, you know, when unions try to get um, people to sign up for, for for membership or to form a union, the bosses might yeah, come yeah, they up with do. posters. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't have very many examples of that, and I'd, I'd love to get more. I have seen flyers, yeah, yeah. and a, there's a lot of these flyers that are these scare tactics about, you know, if you join the union, uh, this is what's going to happen. We have one poster in there that's like that that talks about sort right. of you know, why unions are bad, and I'm sure that there are more. And I and I consider those to be also part of this genre of work. They're about labor, and um, there there are far fewer of those, but they do exist, and I think that those are important to document. 
Do you find after doing all this that um, you get a different perspective on, on American history? Um, yeah, like I said, I was I had not really absorbed how important unions have been in in voting in democracy, and how I think that you know, the right wing talks about you know oh you know that special interest those unions. Well, you know you talk to any Democratic candidate and you and you know that they put a union label on their printed material because they know that. There's enough, you know, even though the labor movement in this country has been gutted, that you know you don't want to you don't want to alienate the labor movement, and so it doesn't hurt to put a union label on something. So the role that labor has played in in elections and in sort of how government runs in this country, I think, has been really under underestimated, and not much has been written about that. And I and I have sort of lost touch with that, but you know anybody that's been in unions knows that. One of the big things everybody does is that you get these big phone banks every election time. People really work to get out to vote. And so, you know, if you had to pick a single organization that in this country that I think has been supporting just whatever, what we, what we call democracy in this country, unions, but they don't get the credit for it. So that's just one revelation I had in doing this book is realizing that, that relationship. How did you get to work, uh, collaborate with... Uh Tim Drescher, he's the co-author of this book. Yeah, um, we've worked the year. We've worked together before. He's a he's an expert on community murals, and so he's very familiar with All sort right. of looking at imagery and understanding sort of how images get used as community building. And and we also knew that we could write well together, and so it was just it was nice to do a collaborative project. Um, and it was, we brought something different to the table, um, and he sort of offered perspectives on how sometimes many of these posters, not many, but some, are based on murals or are based on mural or done by mural artists. I mean, there's one mural artist, Mike Olowitz, who teaches in Central Connecticut, who's, you know, he does fantastic murals about the labor movement, but he's also, he's very radical about labor. You know, he's very cynical about how unions have often gotten in the way of workers' rights. So he's very supportive of workers' rights. He's much more cautious about the role of unions, but he also supports, he's done posters and murals that support unions, but he's sort of one of the crossover artists. And so Tim and I like somebody like him because it's nice to show that posters are often only one medium that artists use, and they often will take up other things, like T-shirts and, and billboards and, and murals. Uh, you also have, actually, since you, we were at the, we're from the UC, you do have a, a UC poster from Upti. Oh, yes. Now, UC uh, definitely has some posters, and um, you know, and there are, there are even some librarian posters I did, didn't get to put in there. So um, every occupation has labor posters, and UC certainly has its share. Um, there's you know a lot of struggle within UC, and many different unions represent the workers at UC, and so I, I definitely wanted to include that because it's, I, again, I think it's part of the, the dynamic tension of what makes an institution strong and places that treat their workers well, I think, work better. And so I think that the struggle for better treatment of workers within the University of California is 
is a fascinating subject. And um, in fact, one project that I ran across very late and didn't really get to include in this book was an organizing project out of uh, Santa Barbara hmm. that was the deliberately integrated posters into a local organizing effort. Oh, wow. And so UC Santa Barbara, there was a whole effort at drawing in poster art to, to help organize their workers there. So I mentioned that in the footnotes, but I didn't really get a chance to get copies and include some of those posters. So there could easily be a second book. There's a lot more work that's out there that just wasn't included. I know uh, photographs of labor struggles also. Uh, Fred Glass in the and the union that um, many of us uh, are in um, also takes a lots of pictures. He's from UC San Diego, a lecturer, and he's been active. Uh, well, Fred Lonadier. There's Fred, Fred Glass and Fred, Fred Lonadier. Fred, Fred, oh, Fred Lonadier, sorry. Fred Lonadier, yeah. San Diego. And Fred Glass is at the Oakland, right? Yeah. yeah. Fred Glass is the communications director of the California right. Federation of Teachers. So I was talking and about, I worked with yeah, Fred. When I was librarian yeah. at Berkeley, I was represented by them, and I worked closely with Fred. Um, and so Fred Lonadier, I've also worked with because I was a student at UC San Diego. Oh, I yeah. met Fred there. And he takes and so a lot Fred of pictures Lonadier every time. A lot of, yeah. Fred Lonadier does a lot of work with using photographs to sort of explore what the labor movement is and how workers function. And he does really wonderful work using photographs around labor specifically. So and sometimes yeah. his, poster, his work ends up in posters. Right, 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 right. So there's actually, posters are just one of the media that uh, are used to organize. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Do you feel that um, now that with all this uh, attention, like we were talking earlier about putting stuff online, uh, you said that the means of uh, communication now is, is, is much faster, of course. You can do a Facebook uh, page, and then everybody, you know, you send it to all your friends, and everybody knows about a struggle. Um mm -hmm. But do they, uh, does it take, uh, who, who would be putting up posters? Would it have to be, you know, it's... it's Some, well, sometimes yeah. it's individual artists. Sometimes it's organizations, you know, that, you know, if there's a particular group that's working on immigrant rights or something, they'll still often, you know, if you go to their website, they'll have a poster available that you can download, you know, especially if they're doing an organizing campaign, they want to get, get the word out. You know, they all have something that you can download, either big or small, that you can print out and, and, and you, know, you know, share in your local community. Do you see any projects c capturing the web, um, or these web kind of products? Uh, I know University of California, University of California, uh, CDL, the California Digital Library, has, uh, is, has a toolkit, I suppose, or helping, mm -hmm. it does help people or professors who want to research even... I think one of our professors got uh, some stuff from El Salvador uh, mm -hmm. from a campaign over there uh, uh, captured online, some of the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the campaign materials, I suppose. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that the whole sort of challenge as, you know, as an archivist and as a researcher to properly capture web material is a, is a whole new sort of academic tool, you know, and it's hard to do. And in fact, one tool, for example, that I, I do all the time is when I, when I run across something that I see online, I take a snapshot of it, and I also make a note as to which URL I found it at and when I found it, because very often this stuff is so ephemeral. I mean, people think of posters as being ephemeral, but at least I can find a poster that's 100 years old. You're not going to, it's hard to find a website that's, that's uh, one year old. <laughs> and so, 
the, the ephemerality of it um, makes it a, a real challenge, but I also think that it's, it's, it's a very important resource, and so people need to jump on it and start to capture and catalog this material. Um, it's very, very important. Like I said, when I was, you know, after September 11th and I was looking at all these union websites, I didn't, I didn't say screenshots of those. I wish I had. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were an important moment that some of them, even a week later, they changed that web page. Yeah, yeah. So the, the fact that this stuff changes instantly means that you've got to approach it differently than if you run across a pamphlet somewhere. But, but it also is a very important subject, that, and I encourage people to, to jump on that. Even the Internet Archive based in Berkeley, uh, with its Wayback Machine, doesn't save every page of a website, every, yeah, just, or every date, just, every yeah. instance of a web page. It's, yeah, it's, so, just, yeah. it's just impossible. I mean, if you look at how often web pages change, um, you know, even though you think, oh, well, it's just, it's just electronic, it's still, you know, it takes up server space. And it, not only does it take up server space, you know, as a librarian, you know, we both know that if it's not cataloged, it's inaccessible. So you really, some effort has to go into at least having also a, the part of the record is sort of, you know, where it was from, ideally who did it, you know, any, any information you can capture that's metadata about the object also lends value, and that's, that takes up space and time too. So it's not like this stuff can happen by magic. It really does take effort, both in terms of technological support, but also you know, vision, archival vision about how do you capture and catalog and display this material. So it's, it's an emerging wonderful field for anybody who wants to get into archival work, is you know, digital archives. Yeah, I, born, I was, di born digital material. Right. I was on a panel at UCLA on uh, archival research. Uh, they have an institute in the summer on, for PhD students from all over the world, actually. And I was on a panel on ethnic archiving. And uh -huh. it's, it's amazing. That's a whole new area in archival sciences. And um, so I think it's going to attract a lot of really energetic uh, new people to the field. Um, yeah, well, I really, I, mean, I, I, I must admit, I really enjoy being in the archive field. It's, um, you know, there's a million ways you can go. It's, it's a profession that even more so than librarianship, where people can sort of enter through various back doors. They can have a subject specialty and end up becoming an archivist because they're sort of the, the subject expert on that, and they, they have sort of developed an expertise in how to, you know, catalog that particular material, and that's really important. And so, you know, it's a field that I think is, is wonderful, and people should really consider, you know, if not going into it wholly as a profession, to at least better integrate it into whatever other academic work they do. Well, thank you very much, Lincoln, uh, for thank joining you. us. Uh, it's 10 o'clock, and oh, okay. our time is up. Uh, okay, touch. so I, again, people can look on my website and uh, buy the book. Yes, uh, and your website you. is... Website is it's www.docspopuli, B-O-C-S-P-O-P-U-L-I dot org. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Take Thanks care. very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Lincoln Cushing, the author of Agitate, Educate, Organize, American Labor Posters from Cornell University Press. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org slash subversity.